welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the Madden America podcast. This week we interviewed Dr. Julia Rucklidge. Dr. Rucklidge is Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Canterbury, New Zealand, and she leads the Mental Health and Nutrition Research Group. In the last decade, she and her lab has been running clinical trials investigating the role of broad-spectrum micronutrients in the expression of mental illness, specifically ADHD, mood disorders, anxiety and stress. Julia has over 100 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters, has been frequently featured in the media, and has given invited talks all over the world on her work on nutrition and mental health. Dr. Rockledge, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today for the Madden America podcast. To begin, I wanted to ask about you and your background, and what led to your interest in nutritional interventions for mental health? Sure. So, um, I, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly long story, so, but I'll try to you know, give you it fairly succinctly. When I did my PhD at the University of Calgary back in the 1990s, my PhD supervisor, Professor Bonnie Kaplan, who, I, as you know, I, I co-blog with her um, at Mad America, she was approached by families who said that they were treating themselves with nutrients, so vitamins and minerals in pill form. And she, at the time, was very skeptical and, and you know, just said, that's not possible. We've been down this road before. There's no way that could happen. But they shared data with her and they showed in a, in a fairly rough kind of way how their symptoms were improving with the nutrients. And so she decided to study it back in the late 1990s. So I was familiar with the, what she was getting up to. Um, but then I moved on and I went to Toronto for a while and did a postdoc there and a, um, an internship and then moved to New Zealand in 2000 and followed what she was doing, but was, you know, kind of looking at, you know, what in the world is she getting into? But it wasn't long into my career that I kind of woke up to the fact that not enough people are getting better with our current treatments. And so it, my area of specialty is ADHD, and I was always studying kids and adolescents and even adults with ADHD. And despite receiving the best evidence-based treatments like medications and or psychotherapy, they were still incredibly impaired. And so I would hear about her stories about families and, and individuals uh, responding quite dramatically at times to this nutrient approach. And I thought, well, well, where's the harm in just studying it? It's just nutrients. I'll, I'll put through an ethics application and, and see what we can do here in New Zealand. And that's when I hit roadblocks of challenges and you know it, it was it took us a year it took me a year and a half to get it through ethics because they initially said no this these nutrients are in dangerous levels and so I had to produce an awful lot of, of, of information about the nutrients and how the doses that we were using and convince them that this was actually they weren't in toxic levels they were higher than the recommended dietary allowance which is the sort of the number we often focus on but what we ignore um, or don't probably a lot of people don't understand is that RDA is telling you what is necessary in order to prevent yourself from getting a nutritional deficiency like scurvy or like rickets, but it's not a number that we should be too focused on if we're thinking about what is a necessary level for optimal health and particularly optimal brain health. And then on top of that, it might be that people who have psychiatric symptoms and problems 
have a greater need for nutrients, particularly at the time when they're experiencing distress. And so the idea of giving them more nutrients than what you probably could get out of a diet uh, may be necessary in order to improve their symptoms. Absolutely. And I was reading some of your studies, particularly those around ADHD. So I just wondered if you could perhaps summarize some of your observations and results for us. When you start in this area, the, uh, the way we actually started, um, I started studying it, is that you first observe an individual, and that's a case study, because you wouldn't start with it launching with a randomized controlled trial. They're very expensive to run. They're incredibly challenging to do. And so you don't launch into that unless you have some convincing uh, data to suggest that this might be worthy of investing your time and money into that. So we first did some case studies. I observed in these early in the early years of these people just responding and sometimes quite quickly and quite dramatically. And in some cases, they were people I had personally know I worked with professionally for a long time, where we had hit a pretty much hit a roadblock in terms of being able to move and and and, and improve their symptoms. And I was using the you know the the gold standard cognitive behavior therapy treatments for anxiety at the time and and not making a lot of movement and then seeing these people get well in a very short period of time was something that you just have to stop and say, I need to pay attention to this. This is a very interesting observation. It's I always call that the case zero, you know, patient zero. So I continued to collect data within that kind of a way and, and just observing time and again of people getting well. So then that's, so we do that in a sort of a case studies and then open label. And then that's when we launched into this randomized control trial where we um, randomized half of the, these individuals, these adults with ADHD to the micronutrients, the vitamins and minerals versus placebo. And you have to do that kind of study in order for the scientific community to pay attention to your work. If you're publishing those open-label trials, they'll just say, oh, it's a placebo effect. It's because you were nice to them. That's why they got better. And not thinking that the active ingredients were playing any role whatsoever in their improvement. So when you run a randomized control trial, it's a lot harder to argue that because they're getting exactly the same care. They're getting the same level of attention in both groups, but one of them is taking active nutrients and the other one isn't. And what we found, I mean, I, I would say the most consistent finding is that, oh, they, there's a general wellness that happens. That's not very well described. But the individuals who took the micronutrients, they improve quite um, substantially in a lot of different areas. So it's not necessarily specific to the ADHD symptoms that we were targeting, although this, based on self-report, those who had been randomized to the active ingredients, they, the, they, these, they, the, the, these participants and their partners or spouses reported improvements in hyperactivity and impulsivity. And in addition, those this from self-report, they also improved greater, uh, reported greater change in attention symptoms for those who were on active versus placebo. So we did see some changes in the core ADHD symptoms, but we also saw improvements in emotion regulation and just overall general functioning. They just were coming in feeling better. And it's very hard to use a measure to get at that, but that was the, that was the, what came through on our clinical global impression of these people. So that was a, you know, we, we managed after many, many, many rejections uh, through journals, I managed to get that published in a very reasonable and well-respected journal, which is the British Journal of Psychiatry. Absolutely. And I was also interested to read that using this approach, improvements seem to happen relatively quickly. 
it can be relatively quickly. So we can have people come in and within even a week, a couple of weeks, and just report a generally feeling better. But I just want to be cautious in saying that at that that point when they're coming in and reporting feeling better, that is not their optimal, so that we continue to see improvement over time. And even after that trial, which was only an eight-week trial, where you, you know, we, we showed substantially greater differences in those taking the nutrients versus placebo. We also followed them naturalistically over a longer period of time. And we would observe that initial improvement continued over a longer period of time. And they would tell us that I remember one, one participant saying, well, I thought I was doing really well after eight weeks, but now at a year, I, I it was, it's nothing, it's not nothing the same as what, how I'm, how much better I'm feeling now after a year. It's, it's not something that you, it's not static, if that makes sense. You yeah. don't peak and plateau as much. I mean, there's a point at where they plateau because they just they just no longer have any symptoms. Um, but I think some other things start to come through. And we, I mean, this is more anecdotal and we don't have um, controlled data on it, but we do hear people saying that, reporting that they feel so much better. They feel healthier. They're not getting sick as often. Uh, you know, rashes that they could never get rid of have now gone away. So we hear those types of improvements as well over time. Thank you. That's really interesting. And it seems to me from reading your work and the work of others that it's relatively well established that there's value in responding to psychological difficulties with nutrients. So I wanted to ask why you felt this hasn't had a bigger impact on clinical practice. That's a very good question. If I knew it, I'd make a lot of money. Um, (laughs) But it is a, a bit curious why when we've reported these findings and we've reported them now in, I I don't even, I can't keep count of the number of uh, publications I've got, but maybe 30, 40 publications in this area. And it's, they're not all randomized controlled trials, but, but I, uh, but there are other experimental designs like on and off or multiple baseline, or we've done studies on sleep. We've done studies on uh, stress following the earthquakes. Uh, We've done studies with children with anxiety. We've done studies with children with ADHD. So we've, we've documented this very positive, this positive effect for some people. I mean, there are, I need to make sure that the, your audience knows that not everyone gets better, not everyone respond, responds to this nutrient, the nutrient approach, and and I'm spending a lot of time trying to figure out why that is. But overall, we are consistently reporting this positive effect. Other people are consistently reporting this positive effect with using other nutrient variations, like a different combinations of minerals and vitamins, but this similar type of idea. And you're right. It's like, well, why aren't pe- more people paying attention? And I wonder whether or not it's because we're so ingrained in this idea that uh, the mental illness is caused by a chemical imbalance, that it's very hard to move away from that conception of, or that way we can, can understand mental illness and start to think that maybe nutrients are relevant. It's it's still surprising though, because even if you think about the serotonin um, system and making serotonin, you need nutrients in order to make serotonin. So you'd think people would even click into that and say, oh wow, you need cofactors. What are those cofactors? There's zinc, there's magnesium, there's B6. If you don't have those nutrients, you can see why that would affect your ability to make neurotransmitters. But still, people just think maybe this is too simple. If this is so relevant, we would have discovered it by now. And then I think, well, actually, there's 
there's less incentive for people commercially to invest in research on nutrients and nutrition because there's no opportunity for a patent. So you can't, as soon if you were to show that a combination of nutrients works, other people will make it. So there's no incentive to do research. So it may be that it's just the commercial interests aren't there. And so there isn't a widespread marketing that goes around the nutrients to use them for mental illness. You can't um, legally uh, sell nutrients with a medical claim. So there are challenges with the law. That's, you know, it has to be a medicine in order to be able to have a therapeutic benefit. So there's, I think there's a lot of challenges to getting the word out there. I mean, I'm allowed to talk about it because I'm a researcher. I work at a university. And so we're allowed to talk about our findings. But the people who sell nutrients are not allowed to sell the nutrients and put our our findings on their bottle. So there, I, I don't know if that sort of is some of the reasons why I, we, you know, maybe it's the fixed mindsets of you know, we think about the world in one way, and it's very, very hard to shift. And there's a there's a lot of vested interest in terms of keeping the chemical imbalance theory alive. Yeah, absolutely. And something you said there really resonated with me. We've almost been conditioned to accept that mental disorders are very complex things that need complex interventions, and overcoming that seems to be quite a challenge. It's definitely been a very great challenge. And the other challenge is that the scientific method is usually designed to only manipulate one variable at a time. And with a drug like Prozac or um, venlafaxine or any of those, they are only one molecule. Whereas what we're doing is that we have up to 40 vitamins and minerals and amino acids that those doses are getting manipulated. Um, so it's, it is a complex intervention in a way. So, and it's, and it's not a typical way that you would conduct a research trial is to give people a lot of different nutrients at the same time and see what effect it is. Most trials in this area have been on one single nutrient like vitamin D or like zinc. Um, but it's, 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 um, so it's less common for people to take what I call the broad spectrum approach. I understand. Thank you. And you also mentioned there the single nutrient approach. And I read just the other day some article that was saying just take magnesium and you will cure your depression forever. But I read that you've said that this single nutrient response may not be particularly helpful for people. So I just wondered if we could talk about that. Sure. I mean, it may be that you hit the jackpot mm. and that for whatever reason, your problem is that you just don't get enough vitamin D. And so if you were to supplement with a good dose of vitamin D, then that would solve your problems. But overall, if you take a population level that or or take the, the individuals who suffer from mental illness, it's not going to be that simple. So different people are, may require different nutrients. But what's more important is that they probably are going to require a combination of nutrients because nutrients work together. So when I was talking about serotonin and the, and, and the making of, you know, the final product of making serotonin in your brain, you need a whole bunch of these different cofactors. So if you only supplement with just one, then you're still not going to have what that what your body needs in order to make chemicals that are important like neurotransmitters like hormones like enzymes you're going to you need a whole host of different nutrients in order for the body to function optimally that's why we have a varied diet but what what is being lost in our history is that one of the number one reasons why people were being hospitalized in the 1930s like put into an asylum was due to pelagra, the psychosis that was brought on by this deficiency. 
as a diet, you need to be eating a variety of different foods, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables and protein, carbohydrates, uh, and that if you were to just singly eat one type of food, it would likely create a deficiency. So in terms of finding that magic nutrient, I don't think it exists unless for very, you know, specific conditions, uh, medical conditions that we've identified, uh, like, for example, scurvy, vitamin C. But those, in her, when it comes to psychiatric disorders, chances of finding that one magic nutrient, I, I think we would have found that by now. And Julia, I wanted to ask for your thoughts on what you felt we should be focusing on when we think about nutritional approaches to what might be called psychiatric disorders. Well, I would love for the government agencies and the funding bodies to really wake up to the potential of this approach. And it's not just by giving nutrients in pill form necessarily. It could be looking at different types of diets and whether or not certain diets are going to have a more positive effect on your mental health. We know about the research that's been done by Felice Jacka in in, um, Australia, where they showed that putting people onto a Mediterranean-style diet who were depressed and not eating very well had a significant impact on their uh, well-being and their mental their mood relative to people who are just receiving a social support. So there's there's a lot of potential here, but there's not a lot of scientists who are involved in this area. And so I think we do need to have this uh, an awakening and say there's there's a lot of opportunity for doing some really good things here with less harm and we i think you know rather than the experience that i've had which is just overall skepticism and and also a lot of attacks it would be nice if there was an embracing of this idea by the local communities by the psychiatric services and by funders to say we really should be investing in this we just haven't gotten anywhere with the single molecule approach. There's the drug companies, as far as I understand, are not investing in trying to find any more drugs that are going to help in terms of psychi- psychiatric symptoms. So what else is out there? Let's let's investigate this one. And it does seem like all of the research is pointing in the same direction, which is that this could be a benefit to many people. Absolutely. And I'd also like to see much more investigation into that too, rather than the cul-de-sac we currently find ourselves in. And if it's okay, I'd like to turn now to ask specifically about your TEDx talk in Christchurch in 2014, entitled The Surprisingly Dramatic Role of Nutrition in Mental Health. And that talk is extremely popular. It's been viewed over 900,000 times, received in excess of 15,000 likes and well over 1,000 comments. But recently, I understand that your talk was flagged by TED. So could you tell us what happened? Sure. So just for your audience to understand is that my talk was done at a local TEDx event, so TEDx Christchurch. And the TEDx community is independent of TED. And I'm not sure I totally understand how this works. So they're independent of TED, but then TED will allow the talks to get promoted on their website. Mm. But they are they continuously make sure that the audience, the people understand that it's not being endorsed by TED. It is independent and independently organized. But they seem 
to have this ability to come in and say, well, if we don't really like what happened at a TEDx event, then we're going to flag it. And we're not going to let the TEDx community person know. We're not going to let the TEDx Christchurch curator know about this. We're just going to go ahead and do it. And we're not going to contact the um, speaker and say, you know, this this particular talk has been, has been brought to our attention. Apparently, someone complained. I don't know who they won't. I've asked. Um, no one will tell me. They won't tell me the nature of the complaint. So I'm continue to be in the dark now uh, over a month later. So they they have this right to make a decision about what they think about that talk. And they came to the conclusion that they did not think that I followed the scientific guidelines, um, which is un- incredibly hard to understand how they came to this conclusion. They claim that I was uh, too sweeping in my some of my statements and that that was why they said I went outside of their curator guidelines. And then their initial flag, they said, there is limited evidence to support the claims made by the speaker. Please do not look to this te- this talk for medical advice. Well, I'm fine for all YouTube talks to have a, a, a flag that says, you know, don't use YouTube for medical advice. That's fine. But they didn't have to... Uh, question my science in order to flag it with that type of a flag. That was not necessary. So why did they they decide that it was necessary to sort of, in a, you know, just sort of very subtly have the public question, oh, well, maybe she's not that scientific because this, the public don't know why they've put that flag on. And if you, again, if you look at the criteria, you know, be tested experimentally, well, we do RCTs, which is the most commonly used and gold standard uh, experimental thing that's used, published in peer-reviewed journals. Not only am I published in peer-reviewed journals, but really good journals. We've managed to get the British Journal of Psychiatry. We then did a a, a trial a year or two, a couple of years later that we got published in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry, which is one of the top journals in, in this field. So it's hard to understand why they're questioning that one be based on theories that are are also considered credible by experts in the field and that's an interesting one because you know not everyone agrees with this approach so you there are of course experts out there who confer with this um, but it does sort of think how can you be innovative and and follow conventional process at the same time I mean that's something maybe we could come back to they'll be backed up by experiments that have generated enough data to convince other exper- experts of its legitimacy well that's absolutely true because we've got a replication that's now going in the United States. And then the European Commission got 11 million euro grant to study the effects of diet on impulsivity and compulsivity. And I've been um, brought on as a consultant and they are using the same nutrients that we studied. So if that isn't an example of where it's being viewed as legitimate by other scientists, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. Have proponents who are secure enough to acknowledge areas of doubt. So I certainly talk about the need for more research to think about the challenges of interactions with medications, what about the role of the gut? So I t- and the, our genetics. So I, I end my talk on that. Um, not fly in the face of the broad existing body of scientific knowledge. Now that's another one where we could say, well, maybe it does, and so that's that's the challenge. Um, uh, be presented by a speaker who works for a university. Well, that's and I'm I'm a professor, so um, at a, a very highly respected university in New Zealand. So and shows clear respect for the scientific method and scientific thinking generally. Well, I hope the fact that I use the sort of experimental designs that are used by others would be evidence of that. So so that's very disturbing to me that they have put that flag on because it's questioning my integrity as a scientist. And that is 
probably the worst thing that can happen to you in terms of your reputation is that an, a big organization like TED has come in and, and said, we're not sure about her as a scientist. Well, it was disturbing to me because I'd seen the talk before it was flagged. And clearly it wasn't an issue for TED between 2014 and now. But not at any time, Julia, while watching, did I think, where's the evidence for that? Because you show the studies on screen, you show the charts from your RCTs, and you refer to other people's work too. So this claim of limited conclusive evidence, for me, doesn't hold water. And judging by quite a lot of the comments made recently, many people seem to feel the same, that the flag seems an unnecessary overreaction to something that presumably someone finds to be a challenge to the dominant paradigm. That's the the only conclusion that I actually can come to. I've wondered about, you know, is it is it the pharmaceutical industry? Have they played a role? Merck is a partner with Ted. Uh, you can you can track that down on their website, but you know, I, I'm a f- small fish in a really small country in the, you know, the, down here in the southern hemisphere. Is that really, am I really the target? But the conclusion that I've come to is that I think it's because I challenge the current paradigm, which is that medications are the way to treat psychiatric disorders. And so therefore, the fact that I do challenge it at the beginning of my talk, I do present um, some of the, the, the long-term data that's not looking so good in terms of the effectiveness of medications. I also acknowledge that medications do save some lives and that they are effective for some people. And if they are, fantastic, but they're not working for enough people. And we need to sit uncomfortably as a society with that idea, which is that not enough people are getting better. And that's evident from the fact that we keep putting more and more people on drugs. Here in New Zealand, it's 13%. And we have a mental health crisis. If it was working so well, people, we would have a overall, over time, a decrease in the number of people with a psychiatric condition, not an increase. So they don't hold together this idea that this, this method is working particularly well. But I wonder whether or not I have gotten lumped alongside people who deny climate change or deny vaccines work that I've, you know, there's, it's this anti-psychiatry, which is not what I am. I'm just saying, hold on, let's look at other ways. Let's see if we can help those people who aren't being helped by medications. That's all I'm saying. And I just wonder whether or not that's what's upset them. I'm not, I, I, I don't know. I'm in the dark. They haven't shared it with me. So, no. and the flag is still there. They did change the flag after providing them with information, but they actually made the flag, in my opinion, a little bit worse. They changed it to, given that the intersection of nutrition and mental health is an emerging field of study with limited conclusive evidence, please consult with a mental health professional and do not look to this talk for medical advice. So now they've opened it up to the whole field, not just my work, but the whole field of nutrition and mental health. And I just struggle to understand how they came to the conclusion that this field is emerging and limited conclusive evidence. It means that they don't understand, say, for example, that history that I told you about pellagra, that it was understood that nutrition, that uh, a deficiency in niacin was contributing to psychosis. They don't understand the whole, that means that they're not appreciating that the massive amount of research that's being done on fish oils or herbs or um, looking at dyes in our food and the effect that that has on hyperactivity, that that's actually led to banning of certain dyes in, in uh, the European, in, in Europe. So there's a, they've, they've targeted the whole field, which is 
really puzzling to me. I can't imagine it's sloppy, but it sure looks that way. I think what upset me about it firstly was the way you were treated, Julia, but also I often look to Ted for cutting edge thinking. And surely they themselves can see that if we're not allowed to challenge the norm and challenge conventional wisdom, then progress is not going to be possible. I know, exactly. Uh, exactly. And that's what puzzles me as well. Like I, I kept thinking, but I was invited onto the stage for innovation mm. and new ideas. And then they come back and then they slap you on the wrist for not having enough data. So you just think, how can you have new ideas and then be criticized for not having enough data. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And then I thought about his, I, you know, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about historically some big medical advances that have been made over time. And I even what actually the way I start my TEDx talk was uh, talking about the story of Ignaz Semmelweis. And he was a physician back in the 1840s that he suggested that you should wash your hands before touching a pregnant woman in order to prevent childbed fever. And his research showed that you could reduce the mortality rate from like 18% down to 2% just by washing your hands with chlorinated lime. But his medical colleagues refused to accept that they themselves were the responsible for spreading an infection. And so he, so some of us was actually ridiculed. He was dismissed by his peers. And ironically, he ended up in an asylum where he died there from septicemia two weeks later. So, you know, and I think, well, if some of us had been asked onto a TEDx stage, he was flying in the face of, of conventional approaches. It was um, a novel idea. And, um, and yet we take it for granted these days. So I see, I guess I saw Ted as being that opportunity and that platform for people like Ignis Semmelweis. And yet, yeah, actually, he wouldn't have met the scientific guidelines. No, absolutely. And Julia, are you in dialogue with Ted about this? Is there any right of appeal? What's the communication with Ted been like? You know, when I first was engaged more out of courtesy, a courtesy that I was CC'd in the communication between the TEDx uh, Christchurch curator and the um, TED media people, they did say very early on, we stand by our flag. The TEDx curator provided some information, you know, from further information and evidence of the, the, the vast amount of research that's being done in this area. And that's when they agreed to change the flag to the one that I just described. And, at, and then she was gone back and has reappealed and said, look, this is unnecessary. She she's met the guidelines. We follow them to a T. Um, it is un, you know not necessary for you to be saying that she's a, working outside of the TEDx's curator guidelines. And no response for 10 days. And, at, and then they've apparently contacted her and said, we were willing to talk to you, not to me, but to her. So uh, that's where we're at at the moment. So it's still in limbo. And it's, you know, it's, I wish they could reflect on the impact this has on me and that it would have been a much better uh, process to have this dialogue occur before the flag went up and say, listen, we're, we want to put this flag up. We're concerned about this talk, but can we at least discuss this? That would have seemed a, a far more transparent way to go forward rather than just doing this kind of dictator kind of approach as far as I can tell and and um, slap this on and then and that's why I've had to do more of a public appeal because they've done this to me it's not what I want to do but I've had to bring this to the attention of people who like our work and say look this is what's happened you know if you're if you're concerned write to Ted mm. let them know and I, I understand that they have gotten a lot of communication from the public and from researchers and um 
and 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 people who who are upset by this flag, but to date it has not had the impact that I'd hope it would have. Well, I hope they do take this seriously and remove the flag. And I have to say that if I were involved in cutting edge research that challenged current thinking and I saw this happening, I'd think very carefully about communicating my ideas via TED, which is a shame. It is a shame because up until now, I had such held it in such high esteem. I was so proud of this talk, having been invited, um, it doing so well because a lot most TEDx talks don't go over a thousand views. So that that my talk was able to go that far, it's probably in the top ten in New Zealand of TEDx talks. So it's a very popular one in my country, um, and so for it to get this black mark on it. I don't feel proud of it anymore. And that's, for me, really, really distressing. I understand. I personally feel that the flag doesn't alter one bit how well you came across, how firm the evidence was that you provided, and how strong your messages were. And I'm sure that viewers will see through the flagging as a thinly veiled attempt by someone to discredit something they find threatening for whatever reason. Yeah, I hope so. But I think there will be people who look at that and then that will raise doubt and they might watch it with a different eye. Mm. And then once you start to watch it, I mean, people, you, you're you you're forced to give a message in a very short period of time. So you can't elaborate as much as I would like to in terms of the, all the caveats and the limitations of our studies and all of those things that you typically do if you were presenting it to a scientific audience. You don't have that opportunity. So they might it might cause some people to look at it with doubt. But on the flip side, I figure most people who are finding my video are finding it because they haven't probably been adequately treated in the current system. And so they're looking for other options. I think that if you responded really, really well with no side effects whatsoever to medications and you had gone to see your GP and you're really depressed, you took a, med- a drug and then you felt amazing, you probably wouldn't be searching on the internet looking for other solutions. So I think the people who come to it are ones who are who haven't been adequately treated. I hear from them all the time. I get, I've had since this TED talk, this TEDx talk has come out, I've had thousands and thousands of emails, and I respond to every single one of them. Um, and they are usually people writing to me, telling me about their their incredibly distressing stories of having been put on lots of different medications and none of them working, and now they can't come off of them. And you know, you know, they've read about this, they've heard about this nutrition, these nutrients that I've been studying. Can they get more information? Well, that brings me to a question. For people listening, if they did want to understand more about how they might make a difference in their life by focusing on nutrition, I wondered if there was somewhere that you'd recommend that people could look to for high-quality nutritional or dietary advice that they could make use of themselves. Right. This is always a really t- difficult question. What would I do? Actually, there's a, a in the UK, there's a, a woman called Susan Lockhart who wrote a book called The Mad Diet, which I actually really enjoyed. And I thought she had some great uh, advice. And I'm not here to promote her book. But I just thought there's not a lot of books out there that pro- can provide you with that information. And I liked hers because it was very easy, um, an easy read. But in terms of just simple advice, 
increasing your fruit and vegetable intake and reducing the amount of processed food that you eat because processed food is energy rich, nutrient poor. And so there's not those nutrients that your brain needs in order to function optimally. And so you can see why people are going to struggle if they don't have the nutrients that the brain needs in order to operate. And the brain is very hungry organ. It's while it's only 2% of the body weight, it uses, it's like 20 to 25% of the metabolic needs. So you need to make sure you feed your brain. And so you're going to get those nutrients, those high levels of nutrients from fruits and vegetables, and also, and as I said, less processed food. So the more you can sort of shift towards a more whole diet, then the probably better off your brain is going to be. That's really sound advice. Thank you. It really is easy to get lost in the internet when you try and find reliable information on this. Yeah, as I said in my TEDx talk, eat what your grandmother would recognize as food. Mm. So if we could just think that way, then then um, then we we might go a long way. But having said that, it might be that that's as I said earlier, it may be that some people who have who have got the symptoms may need more nutrients than they can get out of their food, and that's where our research comes. Comes in. And I guess for your listeners, if they want to know more about my research or they, they want to find out more about the products that, that have been studied uh, internationally, not just in our lab, then they can just email me and I'm always happy to reply. I now have a sort of a generic email, mentalhealthnutrition at canterbury.ac.nz. So that's one word, mentalhealthnutrition at canterbury.ac.nz. My graduate students now reply to the emails, um, but they will be able to answer all questions that the, the public public has of our work thank you that's really helpful and thank you so much for taking the time to chat today firstly about your work but also about what must have been quite a difficult experience for you with ted and i sincerely hope that gets resolved to your satisfaction and that people continue to watch your talk in the hundreds of thousands because i think it's excellent Thank you very much. And I, I certainly hope so too. I can, all I can do is protest and write and I will. I'm not going to give up. I, you, you don't go into this type of research and, and be one who can give up easily. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't still be here 10 years later doing this research because as I sort of alluded to, we've had a lot of obstacles over the time. So um, this is, I just see this as yet another obstacle and that it's my role to educate ted about nutrition i'm completely with you on that one julia it's been such a pleasure to chat today for the podcast thank you you're welcome so i want to thank julia for chatting and if you'd like to watch her ted talk or to read some of the studies we referred to you can find links in the post that accompanies this interview on maddenamerica.com so thanks for listening and until next time take care Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.